Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today, Come Follow Me covers Isaiah 40 through 49, but just note that 36 through 39 are skipped. So Bryce and I are going to talk a little bit about those historical chapters that are skipped. Now, before we do that, I want to remind you that no one understood Isaiah like Nephi did. And some of the statements Nephi makes really do help us get more out of Isaiah. Like, for example, Nephi said we need to see Isaiah. He said that he understood Isaiah because he knew concerning the regions round about. So the more you understand history or culture or the relevance of an item that Isaiah is describing, the more you're going to find meaning in it. But then I want to point out that both Nephi and Jacob emphasized that if you're going to get more out of Isaiah, you have to liken. Six times before Jacob and Nephi include insertions of Isaiah, they say, liken. I think that's significant. And if ever there were a set of chapters of Isaiah that I would strongly encourage you to liken, it's these middle chapters from middle 30 through 49. Because here's the setting. Bad things are happening to Israel. The Babylonian captivity is coming. The Assyrians are going to come down and conquer the northern tribes. And so, You have to find in each one of these how it applies to you. For example, when Sennacherib comes into Jerusalem and the Assyrians are threatening to destroy the Jews, they send a letter to the Jews saying that Hezekiah will not be able to save them, that they should just give in and stop resisting and let the Assyrians have their lands, that Hezekiah is not going to be able to save them. So you need to be able to say, wait a minute, that's like Satan trying to convince me that Jesus is not going to be able to save me, therefore I should just give in and let him have my lands. Do you see the relevance there? And then throughout all of the Babylonian captivity, the Israelites are getting beaten up. They need to hear the voice of the Lord, that he's with them. That's what these chapters are going to emphasize. Fear not, I am with thee. He's going to say that over and over and over again. I am holding your hand. I am going to save you for my sake. He's been there the whole time. And that's a realization I hope every one of you will make this week as you apply these words to yourself. Now, that being said, let's go back to Hezekiah's stand against Assyria. And you need to see Jesus in this story that the Assyrians are trying to tell the Jews that you shouldn't trust Hezekiah. You shouldn't trust Jesus to save you. He's not going to be there when you need him. And that's going to set us up for all of the 40s that we'll now study. Yeah, that that's essentially what we see in the 36th and 37th chapter of Isaiah, is the Assyrian army has taken everything out. I mean, we think they may have taken out as many as 46 of the Judean cities in and around the area of Jerusalem, but they're not able to get in Jerusalem. They lay siege to it, and in the 36th chapter, Reb comes, and he basically gives the message to the emissaries of the king that, you know what, if you guys surrender to us, we're going to take you to a new land, everything's going to be right. But the one thing he says is that verse in chapter 36, verse 14, where he says, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. 
And if you think about how the king represented the cosmic king, meaning Yahweh, meaning Jesus. And so in this instance, Hezekiah represents Jesus and Rabshakeh represents the forces of darkness or the voices of darkness saying, don't trust in Jesus. And Hezekiah, he's in a position where he isn't really sure what to do. And so in these chapters, he goes to Isaiah and he says, what should we do? He actually seeks counsel. If you go to the 37th chapter, verse 5, it says, the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. What do you think I should do? And Isaiah's response, verse 6 of chapter 37, thus saith the Lord, be not afraid. Be not afraid of the words which you have heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. So it's not you, Hezekiah, they blasphemed, but it's me. Verse 7, Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now that actually happened. Um, According to the annals of the Assyrians, uh, a few years after this event, the king, Sennacherib, or however you say his name, he goes back to Assyria and he is killed by his own people. And so Isaiah is proving prophetic over and over again. And so the 37th chapter from about verse 8 to verse 36 are the Assyrian messengers to the Judeans and their reactions. And so the Assyrian response when they come back is found in Isaiah 37, 9 through 13. And that's essentially, they're going to say, okay, where are all the other gods of the other cities? We've wiped out these 46 other cities and they have gods. How are you guys any different? And then King Hezekiah gives his reaction, and his reaction is actually a prayer. And that's in chapter 37, 15 through 20, and it's beautiful. There are so many prayers in the Bible that that are worth reading. This is definitely on that list. Verse 15, Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, and he said, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwells between the cherubim, thou art God. Now, verse 16 is important. Liturgically, we know this from the 25th chapter of Exodus, that the God of Israel would speak to them from betwixt the cherubim. That is in the Holy of Holies. So the image seems to be portrayed here that Hezekiah is at the veil, and he's speaking through the veil to God. Now, liturgically, I totally see this happening. Was the king allowed there? I mean, you can grapple with that. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament saying only the high priest is going here, but then we have kings acting in the roles of kings and priests. That's kind of how I read this bit. I read this as Hezekiah is acting as a king and priest. He's in the temple and he's pleading with God. And he says, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And then he says, incline thy ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their countries. And they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. And so that's his prayer. And it's a beautiful prayer. And then in the 37th chapter, right after he prays, verses 21 through 35 is the Lord's response, and it's in the voice of Isaiah. And there's some fascinating things here. We're not going to read the whole response. I would encourage you to read it. I think these chapters really do matter because they're applicable in our life. We all have moments in our life where the Rabshakeh's out there say, 
you have no rational reason for faith, or that something's going on in our life where we're surrounded by these Assyrians symbolically, and we say, you know, what am I to do? And I love this response that the Lord gives through Isaiah. Look in verse 22. Now, I'm going to read it a little bit differently, verse 22. My reading is, the virgin daughter of Zion holds you, Sennacherib, in derision. She totally disrespects you. The daughter of Jerusalem shakes her head at you. And then verse 23, we're back to the King James. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? So this is the Lord speaking to the king of Assyria. And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? And by thy servants hast thou reproached the Lord and hast said, By the multitude of my chariots, I am come to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the cedars thereof. Now that's a metaphor for the temple built out of the cedars of Lebanon. And essentially the Lord's saying, it's not going to happen. And so skip down to the sign. I find this sign fascinating, and it's verse 30. This is a sign that the Lord's giving to Hezekiah. I'm just going to read this translation. But to you, this shall be a sign. This year... Eat what grows wild, and the following year what springs up of itself. But in the third year, sow and harvest, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. Essentially, what the Lord is telling Hezekiah is, this is going to be a rough couple of years. We're not going to have the best harvest, but in the third year, you guys are going to be able to harvest. And then verse 31 in the King James reads, The remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. So there's all this fertility image swirling around, but it's actually rooted in history. You see, the Syrians did destroy the crops. I mean, they're eating the crops of the land and wiping out the people, but the Lord says, you know what? In a couple of years, it's going to be okay. That's your sign. And then verse 35, the Lord says, I will defend this city. And we know that happened. We know historically that the Assyrians don't get in. The Assyrians leave records And it's on this thing called Sennacherib's prison. We'll put it in the slides and you can see what it looks like. And there's some translations you can look at. And essentially he says, I wasn't able to get into the city. Now, it doesn't say this in Sennacherib's prison, but it does say this in the scriptures. If you look in verse 36, 37, and 38 of the 37th chapter, we read that 185,000 of the Assyrians are, quote, all dead corpses in the morning. We don't know what happens. They got some kind of disease. And this is also in the King's narrative. Uh, We read this as well, that in verse 38, when he goes back, it talks about his own family killing him. And the withdrawal of the Assyrians and the death of Sennacherib, according to their own records, states that he was assassinated in 681 BC, a couple of decades after this event. We think this event in this chapter is right around 701 BC. And so those chapters, I know that they're skipped and come follow me. I see them as important and relevant and at the heart of the message because it's this overarching message is the Lord going to be able to deliver us? And remember, Hezekiah is a type of Jesus. And so is Isaiah. I see that as well. And Isaiah and Hezekiah are also servants of the Lord. And that's going to get us into this bit where we start to talk about Isaiah's message of God's servant. And I think we can also read these as our story. We're Hezekiah. We are Isaiah in a way. And so we'll kind of see that as we go through. So with that in mind, let's jump into, we're going to skip 38 and 39. 
We're just going to jump into chapter 40. Now, that theme is going to be picked up in all of these chapters. It's do you trust man? Do you trust someone else? Or do you trust God? In whom do you place your trust? He's going to ask that question. Who are you going to compare me to? He's going to say it over and over and over again. I am the Lord God, and beside me there is no God. So who do you choose to follow and to worship? Now, I feel compelled to take us back to the Book of Mormon before we jump into this, where King Benjamin, at the end of his address, basically says, if you do one thing, everything else in your life is going to be right. He says in chapter 4, verse 12, if you do this, and we'll talk about what the this is in just a minute, if you do this, you will always rejoice, you'll be filled with the love of God, you'll retain a remission of your sins, you'll grow in a knowledge and the glory of the God who created you. You won't have a mind to injure one another, you'll live peaceably, you'll render unto every man according to that which is due, you'll raise your children righteously. In other words, if you do this one thing, everything else will work out. So what's the one thing? Back in verse 11, Mosiah chapter 4, verse 11, I would that you should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness or man's nothingness. Even the king of Assyria is nothing. Babylon is nothing. Cyrus the Great is nothing. If you would retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness and his goodness and long-suffering towards you unworthy creatures, then all these things are going to happen. And that's kind of the heart and soul of these chapters. And that's why I love that we jump right into that in chapter 40. I love verses 12 through 14. Now, we'll come back to the beginning, but let me just take you right to 12 through 14. This is the theme here. Who hath measured the waters? in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in a scale, and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding. The nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. And then verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing. They are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Likes on social media, being accepted by your friends, seeking the favor of kings and emperors and nations. All of that is nothing. And then the Lord says, to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? Do you see this idea that if you will remember the greatness of God and always retain that in your heart and in your soul and the nothingness of man, Everything works out in the end. Don't be confused and think man is great and God is nothing. And that's what these chapters are going to emphasize is that God is with you. He is holding your hand. He is going to lead you even though there are troubling times. So don't put your trust in something else. Don't seek for someone else's approval. Rely on him. I really like that. 
you just laid out a beautiful reading of how can I apply this and also what does it represent? I want to just take a look at uh, chapter 40 and look at it as the temple. I think this is really neat. For me, this really pops, but this is not the first reading. So if you're coming to Isaiah 40 cold and you've never read it, I would encourage you just read Isaiah 40 and look for ways that it just comforts you. Look for ways that it spiritually uplifts you. But then if you're coming to this with maybe you're looking for, okay, what what else is going on here? Um, then I want to just submit some ideas. Now, a lot of this is coming from some of the scholars that I've read. One of them is a scholar by the name of Aubrey Johnson. And he says that the second part of Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 is rooted in first Israelite temple religion. And the whole thing is about the fall festival and about the temple and liturgically becoming kings and queens and coming unto God. He talks about this. So does LeGrand Baker and Stephen Ricks and David Butler. Those are kind of the scholars that I'm channeling as I read this. So here's just some ideas. It starts in verse one, where it says, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. That's the English. We break down the Hebrew in the show notes. This is all a second person, plural, masculine imperative, meaning that there's someone speaking to a group of people. I'm going to call this the divine council. And they're saying, I want you to comfort my people. And then it doesn't say, saith your God. It literally says, saith your Elohim, meaning the gods. So this is Mike Day Midrash. Take it for what it's worth. But if you've been to the temple, this isn't going to be like too big of a stretch. We have this idea in Isaiah 40 that Isaiah sees a divine council of divine beings. And they're making a second person masculine plural imperative to servants plural to go and comfort God's people. Now, we can read this also historically and say Isaiah 40 seems to be given to the exiles when they're returning. So the exiles are coming out of Babylon. Babylon's been conquered by Cyrus. They're coming back and they're going to rebuild the temple and everything's going to be awesome. And your warfare is accomplished. That's verse two. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. Her iniquity is pardoned for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So we're coming out of captivity and the Lord says it's going to be okay. Now, if you look in verse one, where it talks about this idea of comfort, we got to look at that word as how it was understood in earlier times. You see, in 1787, when the American Constitution was written, there was this definition of treason, and it was defined as giving aid and comfort to the enemy. It didn't mean that you were treasonous if you gave a British soldier a blanket. That's not what it meant. The word comfort meant to empower the enemy. So I think one way to look at this word, comfort, is it's an imperative to empower the Israelites. So English translators took this word and they use comfort to literally mean the bestowal of authority or power or empowerment. Let's go to the 23rd Psalm and see how the word comfort is used there. Verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So this idea of comfort can be read as an imperative to empower the Israelites. And I see this liturgically in a temple setting. So if we read it this way, um, it adds substantial depth and meaning to it. Empower my people, make them kings. Verse two, the warfare is accomplished. And then verses three, four, and five, such important verses. I mean, John's going to quote them. 
John the Baptist in the New Testament. They're also quoted by Malachi. Verse 3, 4, and 5, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. For every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked will be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. That is an invitation to come to the veil in the ancient temple and to see the Lord. I think liturgically we could say verse 5 is the brother of Jared being invited to see the Lord. And then we get this, what I would call an enigmatic phrase, verse 6, the voice said, cry. And he said, what am I going to cry? All flesh is grass and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass, the grass withereth. Now that can be really kind of puzzling. Like why why do we go from we're liturgically coming to the Lord and then we have three verses talking about grass? That can be kind of confusing. Now, I want to just refer to this. If you haven't heard this podcast, I would encourage you to go back and listen to episode 73, where we talked about Matthew 5 through 7 as a liturgical temple experience. And it's hidden in plain sight. Knowing that, if you've listened to it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I would encourage you to listen to it. Go to the sixth chapter of Matthew. This is close to the end of the sermon. We have this bit where the Savior says this, where he talks about, don't worry about eating and drinking. I'm going to take care of you. And then he goes to verse 38 where he says, consider the lilies, how I clothe them and they're not spinning. And then he says in verse 30, this is the key verse of Matthew 6. If God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast in the oven, shall he not so much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? We're talking about God clothing the grass. But the grass is a metaphor for people. Welcome to Isaiah. So Isaiah is talking about people being clothed, and he's saying in verse 6 of Isaiah 40, all flesh is grass. In other words, we're temporary, like we're transitory. I know I'm grass because every day I wake up and another joint hurts. I'm getting older, and that's just welcome to mortality. So with that in mind, verses 6 through 8 of Isaiah 40 could be read as God speaking to mortals. And so what does he say? Verse nine, lift up thy voice, lift it up. So we're crying out to God. And then in verse 11, he says he's going to feed him and he's going to carry him. In verse 12, in the hollow of his hand, and then skip down to verse 21. Have you not heard? Has it not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth that it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth? I'm going to read that bit in verse 22 as God crying out from the stone, that circular threshing floor stone that's in the Holy of Holies, and he's sitting upon it and he's crying out. And then verse 23, that he's bringing the princes to nothing. So the kings of the world are nothing compared to Israel who will become kings and queens. And then he says this, verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and behold, who has created these things that bringeth out their host by number that he calleth them all by their names. Think about how the Lord knows your name. Think about when you go to the temple and you do a name from somebody and you start in the basement and you're doing a baptism and then you ascend and they receive the ordinances of the gospel all the way to the final ascent and how many times their name is called out. And then it goes on. Have you not known in verse 28? 
Verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And then finally, 31, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall be mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The idea of coming and being mounted up with wings as eagles is a metaphor for coming into the presence of God, being given the rights of kingship. If you want to know more about that, you might want to just reference these uh, verses. Psalm 99.1, 1 Chronicles 28, 1-21, Psalm 18.10, and 2 Samuel 22.22. 22. So that idea of waiting upon the Lord and mounting with wings as eagles can be read as the coming into the presence of God, having a visionary experience or being overshadowed by the wings of the glory of the Savior. So don't lose faith in those moments of darkness, in those moments when you're wondering or you're wandering and things aren't going the way you want. Don't do what it says in verse 27. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord? and my judgment is passed over from my God. Understandably, we have these moments. Joseph did in Liberty Jail. O God, where art thou? Peter did on the boat where he said, carest thou not that we perish? And we have these moments. It's like, where are you, Lord? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? And that's why I love the next few verses and that mounting up. I love verse 38. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that hath no might, he increaseth strength. Hold on to that phrase. It applies to you. God will do that in your life like he did it in the Israelites' lives. Hold on to the hope that to him that hath no might, he increaseth strength. And then that's that beautiful image of if you wait upon the Lord, if you trust the Lord, if you follow the Lord, you will renew your strength. It really is a theme all through Isaiah, the idea that the Lord honors those who wait for him. Now, Isaiah 41 through 42, 17 We've kind of put this together as the divine ruler and his servants. So the first seven verses of 41 is a dialogue with the nations. And then 41, 8 through 20 is encouragement for Israel. And you might as well get out your hymn book and sing hymn number 85, How Firm a Foundation, because you're going to recognize a lot of the words here. Hold on to that, because you are his servants and he loves you. Yeah. Now, 41, 21 through 29 talk about uh, this debate over God's power over the cosmos. And then the 42nd chapter, the first bit, and it depends on who you read. Some say the first nine verses, some say the first four, is the first servant song. There's going to be four servant songs in Isaiah. And then there's this hymn in Isaiah 42, 10 through 17. So that's kind of the breakdown of how this works out as far as this bit of Isaiah. As we do that, I would like to make an ongoing list of what Jesus is and what he's promised to do. I think we need to draw attention to these. What has he promised to do in your life, in my life, in all of our lives? So I want to start that list in chapter 41, end of verse 9. I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. For I am thy God, 
I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. So that kind of begins our list of what has he promised he will do. Verse 11, kind of in the spirit of the Doctrine and Covenants, he who diggeth a pit for them, the same will fall into it. All they that were incensed against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing. They that strive with thee shall perish. And then I love verse 13, for I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand. Fear not. Verse 14, I will help thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Verse 17, again, like unto your own circumstances, we're all poor in something. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. Notice the list of what he will do in verses 18 and 19. I will open, I will make, I will plant, I will set. So why will he open and make and plant and set? Verse 20, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this. And I think part of that is we need to see the hand of the Lord in our lives. We need to recognize and always retain in remembrance that he really is there and he is holding my hand. Holding my hand doesn't mean everything's going to go great in my life. It doesn't mean I'm going to free be free of trial. The story of Israel certainly doesn't say that they lived a trial-free life, but he will say over and over and over again that he has been there with them the whole time. So see his hand in your life. Now, we'll continue that list as we go on, but I love that list as it starts in chapter 41. Now, I'm a great fan of C.S. Lewis and his writings to children. I believe C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia to help children fall in love with Jesus. In the third book, The Horse and His Boy, two children and two horses are escaping to Narnia. They're trying to find their way back to Narnia. And things go wrong all along. Poor Shasta, he's trapped on the outside of the walls. He has to sleep in the tombs. He's chased by a lion. He was abandoned by his real father and raised by a fisherman who was really harsh to him. He's had a rough life, kind of like the Israelites in this time period have been beaten up by country after country. And in the final leg of the journey, everyone else gets to stay, and he has to go ahead and warn the king. And on that journey, he's kind of moping. And as he mopes, he has one of the most tremendous experiences that I hope you will ponder as we go through these words of Isaiah. I'm going to read from the Chronicles of Narnia, the horse and his boy. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. Now, can you just picture Israel moping and the tears rolling down their cheeks? What put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing, or person, was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. At last, he could bear it no longer. Who are you? 
he said scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how he was chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and all their other dangers in Tashban and about this night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. He told about the heat and thirst of the desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus, and also how very long it was since he had anything to eat. I don't call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night. There was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth, said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion that gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came ashore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus. It was I. But what for? Child said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but their own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, deep and low so that the earth shook, and again, myself, loud and clear. Then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. Luckily, Shasta had lived all his life far too south in Kalarmen to have heard the tales that were whispered in Tashban about a dreadful Narnian demon who appeared in the form of a lion. And of course, he knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor over the sea, the king above all high kings in Narnia. But after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped off the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he didn't need to say anything. The high king above all kings stooped toward him. His mane and some strange and solemn perfume that hung about his mane was all round him. He lifted his face and their eyes met. Then instantly the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled themselves together into a swirling glory and gathered themselves up and disappeared. He was alone with the horse on a grassy hillside under a blue sky, and there were birds singing. That's what these chapters in Isaiah portray. Of all the beatings they were taking, of all the trials they were facing, 
they need to discover that Aslan has been there the whole time. That Jesus had his hand in the Assyrian conquest. That Jesus had his hand in Cyrus being called to send them back home. We all need to realize that all along our life, it was Jesus. It was Jesus the whole time walking beside me and doing the very things that I needed done for my good. That's what these chapters in Isaiah portray. That's good. Now, for me, I mean, I, I love it all, but I really do like the servant songs. There's four of them, typically in scholarship. They organize them into a group of four. And the first four verses of Isaiah 42 most agree that that's the first servant song. I like the first nine verses. So the second one is Isaiah 49, 1 through 6, and then Isaiah 54 through 9. And then the final servant song is Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Let's jump to the servant song in Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment into truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. So what we have here is a servant that is bringing fairness to the Gentiles. That's verse one, but he's also setting fairness in the earth. So the servant really isn't just to one group, but it's to the whole world. Now, the servant's not named, so readers and scholars typically don't always agree over who it is. Generally, the Jewish scholars that I've read believe that the servant is either Isaiah or a representation of the people of Israel. Now, I'm just going to say this. I happen to like Jewish scholarship, and I really do like their reading of this. And over and over again, the Lord does say, I'm going to talk to my servant Oh, Israel. And he says it over and over again. And he identifies Israel as his servant. And a close reading will just reveal that. It's all over the place. So I like that. But then Christian scholars look at this and say, oh my goodness, the servant is Jesus. Isaiah is talking about Jesus. And I like that as well. I like that. Now I would throw this out there. What if it's also covenant members of the restored gospel. You and I. Right. What if he's speaking about and to you and I? I remind you, 3 Nephi 27, we're going to say this so many times. Jesus said that the writings of Isaiah have been and shall be. Could it be that he's referring to all of those simultaneously? So you can read it as Jesus. You can read it as Isaiah. You can read it as, as Judah and Israel. You can read it as you. I like it. I really do see this as multivalent. There's a great list we'll put in the show notes of 12 characteristics of the servant. And I think as we read these 12 characteristics, we can see that it could be any of those things. I really do think trying to pin Isaiah down to one meaning can be challenging. So as we go through the servant songs and as we go through, you know, it's going to be in this week and it's going to come in in subsequent weeks and come follow me. I think it behooves us to just read this with a healthy dose of humility and say, it could be lots of things. And that's what makes Isaiah so awesome. Now, for me, I like to look at this as Jesus. I mean, I love that reading. 
Verse six, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and I will hold thine hand. So Bryce has talked about the Lord holding the right hand of the servant. We're back to verse six. And I will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light to the Gentiles to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Verse five. He that giveth breath unto the people and spirit to them that walk therein. Just a beautiful list here. For me, I love reading this as the Savior opening blind eyes, bringing prisoners out of the prison. I think section 138 gives us that kind of liberty to look at it and go, oh, those that are in prison in the spirit world, right? Jesus Christ brings about the resurrection. And then it introduces, after this description of the servant, this new song that is sung in verses 10 through 17. And then the whole world joins in. We saw this in the Doctrine and Covenants. We've seen this so many times. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and then the wilderness and the cities and the villages and the inhabitants of the rock and upon the mountaintops and the islands. It's that whole idea that the earth and everyone who knows the song of redeeming love is going to sing to him someday, if not now in our hearts. Yeah. So Isaiah 42, 18 and 19 can be kind of confusing sometimes. Look at verse 18. Hear ye deaf and look ye blind that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind is he that is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observest not. Opening the ears, but he heareth not. Now, these verses, and it's doing the same thing in the Hebrew. It seems to be indicating that the servant is actually blind and struggling. And in the Joseph Smith translation, it changes the whole meaning of that verse. And essentially, it's the people who are blind and not the servant. He, the servant, is sent to teach a group of those who struggle to see. So that's the Joseph Smith translation. Now, that being said, then we can probably pin down, okay, who's the servant? So he's going to people that are blind. I mean, that could be a lots of people. It could be a covenant member of Israel going out to preach the redemption in and through the blood of Christ. It could be the Savior. It could be any of the servants of the Savior in the New Testament. It could be Isaiah. Another way to read it, and this is just my geekiness coming out through this, but throughout the text, Israel is called the servant. And is Israel blind? Yes. Over and over again, Israel is depicted as blind. So for example, if you look in Isaiah 41, 8, but thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, thou art my servant. I mean, that's Isaiah 41. Right there, we have Israel as the servant, and it comes up over and over again. And so in that reading, I'm actually okay with Israel being blind and deaf, for this is the state that Israel is in at the time of Isaiah's prophecy and for much of the Old Testament. So on one hand, I see Isaiah making perfect sense. On the other hand, as some of the passages regarding the servant Isaiah speaks of, at least to me, it seems that there's some ambiguity as to who he's speaking of. And in some cases, the servant that the Lord sends out is the opposite of blind and deaf, as the Joseph Smith translation indicates. So to me, I would just say this. I think it depends on how you read the text. I like both. Now, clearly, I don't view Jesus as blind and deaf. 
So when we're talking about the servant and we apply it to Jesus, that doesn't make sense. But when we're talking about Israel, well, Isaiah tells them they're blind and deaf and Israel's the servant. So I'm just kind of swimming in this ambiguity when we read Isaiah. And I think the New Testament writers picked up on that theme, that Israel is blind, but needs to open her eyes. I love how John portrays that. First in chapter four with the woman at the well, first she calls Jesus a Jew, and then he becomes sir. And then a little bit later, now he's a prophet. And then finally she runs in and tells the people, I have found the Christ. And John's trying to say, do you see how that blindness was swept away as they began to recognize who Christ is? I think that's a beautiful image of blindness becoming sight. John's going to repeat that again in chapter 9 with the man born blind. First, the man's going to refer to Christ as a man that is called Jesus. That's who he was, a man called Jesus. Later on, he says, when they ask, what sayest thou of him? that opened your eyes, and the man says, he's a prophet. He went from a man called Jesus to a prophet. And then he kind of rebukes them and says, will you also be his disciples? And the the Pharisees revile him back and say, thou art his disciple, but we're the disciples of Moses. Now, what would he as a disciple be calling Christ? He is my master. He is my leader. So Jesus has gone from a man called Christ to a prophet to my master. And then when Jesus finds him after he gets kicked out, he says, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And the man answers and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Jesus says, Thou hast both seen, seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. Then the man says, Lord, I believe. So he went from a man called Jesus to a prophet to my master, to my God. And I think that's the theme here of Israel is blind, but needs to open her eyes as she accepts her God and Christ. Beautiful. So this next bit of Isaiah, really starting in verse 18 of chapter 42 to the end of 44, to me really is the Lord proclaiming his loyalty to Israel. And so if you go to the 43rd chapter, I mean, look how many times he talks like this. He says in verse 1, But now saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, and I have called thee by name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God." So he just says, you know, I've loved you. I've been with you. He says in verse four, I have loved thee and I will give men for thee. Fear not. Verse five, I am with thee over and over again. Verse seven, everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yea, I have made him. So the Lord is just emphasizing his complete love. His, I mean, this is that covenant love, that chesed, that love that he has for his people. And Mike, I think it's significant to point out in verse five that he says, I'm going to be with you for many generations. I'm not going away because he says in verse five, fear not for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. And he mentions that idea several times 
times about, I will be with thy seed. Jumping to 44, verse 3, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and flood upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thy offspring. So I think he's trying to, he's not only prophesying that Israel's going to come back great and glorious, but I think he's trying to say, not only are you mine right now, but I am not going away. He's going to tell us in chapter 49, I can't go away. Here's why I can't go away. I am 100% committed. I will be here all throughout the generations, and I will bless your children. That's who this man is that we worship. He's going to be with us through the long haul. Absolutely. There's a verse that some consider blasphemous, depending on who you read. Some scholars read this and say, why would Isaiah say this? Verse 18, remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing, and it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. In other words, one of the things he seems to be saying in verse 18 and 19 is, okay, I know you guys love the story of the Exodus, how I made a path in the way of the sea. That's verse 16. And I I helped you to cross the mighty waters. But in verse 18, he seems to be saying, that's nothing compared to this new thing that I'm going to do. And so some read that and say, how could he say this? And if you read this and you've never heard of the restoration, or maybe if you read this and you don't believe in Jesus, you might read this and go, how could this be? But one of the ways I read this new thing in verse 19 is that's Jesus. Jesus is conquering the dragons and the owls of our life. That's verse 20. He's doing the new thing. The new thing is we're fixing everything. And then I also read this as, okay, but it's also the restoration, the new thing, but then even better, is the final fixing, the millennial day. Isaiah sees the millennial day when everything will be, look at what it says in verse 19, I will make even a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. That's a fertility image that the Lord is fixing everything. In Jeremiah 16, Mike, he says, The days will come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. You will no longer boast about Egypt when you talk about the strength of the Lord, because, verse 15, But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the lands whither he hath driven them, I will bring them again into the land that I gave unto their fathers. In other words, the miracles of the restoration are the new thing. And we will talk about those stories more than we talk about the stories of getting out of Egypt. They will surpass the miracles of the past. And I love how President Nelson said that the Savior will be doing his greatest miracles between now and the time he comes again. So that's the new thing that's coming. Now, that brings up an interesting point I'd like to make. Not only is he saying, I will be with you throughout the generations, but there's this idea of blessing your children. All throughout Isaiah, we've seen this idea of a remnant, that a remnant will survive. So we start off chapter 44, thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant." Verse 3, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon thy seed. I think there's a very clear reference to the Latter-day Saints here, to the Latter-day work that we survived the thirst of the apostasy, the floods of the apostasy, 
And now the Lord is pouring out his spirit upon us, the latter days, and his blessing is upon us. So there's always that hint. But the rest of chapter 44 and the next couple of chapters are kind of the showdown between the gods that people choose for themselves and Jehovah. And so starting in verse 9 is kind of the showdown where he says, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. In verse 17, the residue thereof he maketh a God, even his graven image, he falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, deliver me, for thou art my God." But that is no God. In 45, verse 20, he says, They have no knowledge that set up the word of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Why are you praying unto a God that cannot save? And then in chapter 46, verse 6, it's that same idea. Notice he's asked in verse 5, To whom will you liken me? and make me equal and compare me. Why do you make that golden image or your car or your money or your hobbies or whatever your God is, why are you comparing that to me? Verse six, they lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith and he maketh it a God. And they fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon their shoulders. They carry him and set him in his place and he standeth. For his place shall he not remove, yea, one shall cry unto him, and then this phrase, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his troubles. There's some punning going on in 46. When you have Bel Marduk, that's verse 1, Bel boweth down and Nebo stoopeth. Nebo is the son of Marduk. He's a scribe or the holder of the tablets of destiny. And Bel is Marduk. And Marduk is this figure in, in the Babylonian pantheon that's this god that they would carry in a procession. Once again, the Babylonians have their New Year's procession. And so they would put this god on a cart and they would circumnavigate the temple and they would set up. Marduk. And once he's established and set up in the temple, then Marduk is with the Babylonians. And so there's all this punning going on because Isaiah is basically understanding their New Year's festival. And he also understands the Israelite New Year's festival where Yahweh is enthroned in the temple and Yahweh carries us. So verse three and four, the Babylonians had to carry their God, but the Lord says in three and four, I've been carrying you the whole time. The Lord is carrying them. And this is interesting. This is uh, J.H. Eaton says this. He says, the association of carrying and salvation is found in the ancient festal hymn. And it's also found in Psalm 68, 20. Blessed be the Lord, for he carries us. And then we get into the reference where the Savior talks about this, right? Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, who's your God? Is your God going to be a burden or is your God going to carry you? And in this chapter 46, the Lord's like, listen. I've been carrying you the whole time. There's some good stuff here. Yep. So with that, we're going to transition back. We're going to go back to the end of Isaiah 44. So the Lord is going to assert his servant. And Cyrus historically was the man that freed the Jews. So let's let's get our bearings here in history. In 586, the temple's destroyed. The Jews are taken captive to Babylon, which is far away from their homeland. And over the course of time, 
a man by the name of Cyrus, who is a Persian, is able to get into the city of Jerusalem and capture it and take over Babylon. He's a Persian conqueror of Babylon. And so because he does this, one of his policies was he wanted the people to be able to go and worship their gods according to their own dictates of their own, the way they worked religion. And so that's what Cyrus did. So he's portrayed as a deliverer in Isaiah. And the servant is Koresh in the Hebrew. It's going to be in the English as Cyrus. For those of you that live in America, you may have heard of a man by the name of David Koresh who lived in Waco, Texas, and he had a standoff with the federal government. He's using that name Koresh, which is Cyrus, basically channeling this idea. You know, I'm not going to get into all the things he taught, but back to the text. In Isaiah 44, we have this reference where the Lord says, verse 28, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. And then verse one of 45 reads, thus saith the Lord to his Mashiach, to his Messiah, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaved gates and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee. I'll make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. And in really specific in verse 13, I have raised him up. Curious that he says this. I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives. Very specific as to what he's asking Cyrus to do. Now, the idea here is that God uses nations and kings and leaders to perform his purposes. And he's going to later tell Cyrus, you don't be boasting because it wasn't you, it was me. Uh, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with his potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, what maketh thou or thy work? He hath no hands. In other words, Cyrus, it's not you. I made you great to perform a task. I could take you out and and remove you. It's I'm the one that's behind this. I'm the one that's doing this. I'm the one that's freeing Israel. I'm the one that sent Israel into captivity because of her bad deeds. It wasn't you, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the one that taught the northern tribes a lesson. It wasn't you, Assyria. The Lord uses the nations for his purposes. Cyrus was one of those. He certainly wasn't a prophet. He was a tool of the Lord to bring about the Lord's purposes in getting Israel out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem. Now, these passages about Cyrus have caused most biblical scholars to look at this as a later addition added to the words of Isaiah. Many take the position that chapters 40 through 66 were written after Isaiah because Isaiah is from 740 to right around the turn of the century, sometime in the late 7th century. He didn't live in Cyrus's day. He didn't. And so there are scholars that look at this and say, this is a later edition. And Bryce and I are not going to settle the, the question of second Isaiah in this podcast. But what I do want to present is uh, what I call a middle path. So the middle path looks something like this, that Nephi had the text of Isaiah on the brass plates. He leaves Jerusalem around 600 BC. And then after he leaves, there was probably some edits that took place on the Isaiah text 
after he left. And maybe not all 66 chapters existed. I don't know. I think that's a safe middle path. And it's not just myself that kind of looks at it this way and takes this open position to this idea. There are a couple scholars, LeGrand Baker and Stephen Ricks, and they assert that Isaiah is teaching the temple all through these chapters, but then there's a break right here in the Cyrus bits. And this this is what they write. They say, quote, the break in the drama story, the, the temple drama story, is the Cyrus chapters, which were apparently added during the Babylonian captivity. Part of the prophecy about him is written in the past tense and is the major reason scholars insist that there was a, quote, second Isaiah who wrote during or after the Babylonian captivity. For those of you at home that are interested in this argument, I would just refer you to the show notes. If you want to read more about this, we give you some of the reasonings for their arguments here. I really do like this middle position. I'm totally okay with all 66 chapters having been written by Isaiah. I'm totally also open to the idea that there were additions and that there were edits that took place after Nephi. One of the reasons why I think it's safe to take this position is because if we do a careful reading of the Book of Mormon, we can see that sometimes what Nephi is giving us from Isaiah is not the same as the Isaiah text in the Bible as it is now constituted. So knowing that there's differences as a Latter-day Saint, I think opens us up to understanding some of the ambiguity. We certainly don't have all the answers, but I think it could be that this bit in 44 and that in chapter 45 could have been added later. It's certainly not quoted by Nephi. It's not in the Book of Mormon. I see its value. Whether or not Isaiah wrote it, it is valuable because we see that the emperors of the world are used by the sovereign power of Jehovah, that he is using Cyrus as a tool, just like Bryce read in verse 12 and 13, that the Lord's in charge and he's using Cyrus He's in his hand, and he's using him so that the Jews can go back and rebuild their temple. Remember, if Cyrus doesn't do this, if we don't have the Jews coming back to Jerusalem and building their temple, then what about the story of Jesus? Jesus has to have a temple to come to. He has to have people who read the scriptures and do these things. And so we see the grand tapestry of history all being played out, and there's different players, and not everybody is a covenant member of the house of Israel that's part of this tapestry, because God is bigger than this book we call the Bible. His hands reach out in eternity. Exactly. So now we get to chapter 47, 48, and 49. This is the downfall of Babylon. This is the destruction of Babylon, which obviously Isaiah is prophesying because it's in the future. There was a time when everyone was afraid of Babylon. They were a terror. They just destroyed people wherever they went, and now we're watching them fall, that these kingdoms of man and the power of man is fleeting. They may be really strong for a while, but that will not last. The only thing that lasts are the things of God. So we kind of get into that in these next few chapters, chapter 47, 48, and then we'll see it also in 49. I like to call the first bit of Isaiah 47 as the great exchange. The Lord says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone, grind the meal, uncover the lock, bear the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers. Those are images in verse 2 of slavery. Verse 3, Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit thou silent, and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called the Lady of Kingdoms. 
I was wroth with my people. I have polluted mine inheritance and given them into thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy upon the ancient thou hast very heavily laid thy yoke. And thou saidst, I shall be a lady forever. So we have this accusation by the Holy One of Israel. And he's saying to Babylon that she's going to get off the throne. And then he starts quoting some of the thoughts that she has. In verse 7, she says, I'll be a lady forever. Verse 8, at the end of the verse, she says, I will not sit as a widow. But the Lord says, "Mm, that's not going to happen. Because in verse 9, in one day, you're going to see the loss of your children and your widowhood, and they shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries. It happens in one day. Now, what's interesting is we read the same image where John writes in Revelation 18, verses 8, 10, 17, and 19, where he says, in one hour. How quickly has she fallen? Just like that. Now, one thing that really hits me is historically, have we seen the collapse of markets in literally a day? All of a sudden, everything changes. And I think historically, we've seen this. And so when John writes in the book of Revelation about the whore that has power over the waters and she has the dainties and the slaves and the gold and the silver, and then it's lost instantly, we see that image. And I think John is channeling Isaiah. What if John and Isaiah are seeing some of the same stuff, right? Now, as Latter-day Saints, can we prepare for this? This is apocalyptic stuff. And I think as Latter-day Saints, we have these prophets that stand and say, do you want to be above the dainties of the world? Do you want to be indemnified, as it were, from some of these fluctuations, one thing we can do, get your house in order, be out of debt, have your food storage. I mean, these are practical applications. Now, you're not going to be immune to everything, but we can, as Latter-day Saints, if we follow like basic principles of following prophetic counsel, be somewhat insured against some of these fluctuations. Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason why they say that, but it certainly is one application. But here, historically, just know this, that Babylon does lose the throne. She is kicked off, and this is the great exchange, and the swap happens in the 52nd chapter. Now, we're not doing the 52nd chapter, and we're doing it next week, but I figure since we're there, let's at least look at it. So go to 52, and this is what the Lord says. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth thou shalt no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. So remember, Babylon goes down to the dust, Zion comes out of it. Arise and sit down. What is she sitting down on? The throne. Where are we? The temple. This is a liturgical invitation to kingship. So back to the verse, verse two, sit down, O Jerusalem, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing and ye shall be redeemed without money. This is the temple. This is so good. Like this whole 52nd chapter of Isaiah is awesome. And I'm so excited to talk about it and tune in next week because we're not going to do it here. But do you sense that idea? There was a time where Babylon was the king and the ruler and put down Zion and made them captives and put them in the dust. And now what the Lord is doing is putting Babylon in the dust, and Zion will rule over Babylon. That's the great exchange. And if we just trust the Lord, the same thing will happen with all of our problems, with all of our modern-day Babylons, all of our modern-day challenges, even health issues. That exchange will happen. Yeah, I mean, a sick body will be exchanged for a glorious resurrected body. In fact, Look at Isaiah 61, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings. This is Jesus. Skip down to verse 3. 
to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Verse 3 is a beautiful messianic passage that the Lord promises to those that mourn in Zion. Your brokenness, your ashes will be beautiful. And so I believe that. I hold to that promise because I've had so many people that I know and love have broken bodies and they look forward to that resurrection. And that to me is the root of the beauty for ashes teaching in Isaiah 61.3. And it's symbolized by Babylon. Babylon is the symbol of having had great power over Zion. Zion will have great power over Babylon. Absolutely. Isaiah 48 and 49 a prophecy of the house of Jacob or Israel in the last days as a rebuke and consolation. So we we do have the outline of basically a covenant treaty formula in Isaiah 48. So the first bit is the preamble. Remember in the covenant treaty formula, the preamble is, hey, remember who you are. And that's Isaiah 48, 1 and 2, where the Lord says, let me tell you who you are. And then we have the historical prologue, and that's 48, 3 through 8, where the Lord talks about his dealings with Israel in the past. And then we have the stipulations, what the Lord says he's going to do and what he expects of Israel. That's Isaiah 48, 8 through 13. And then the witnesses. There's these witnesses that stand as a witness to the covenant, and that's Isaiah 48, 16. And then finally, the blessings and cursings, and that's Isaiah 48, 17 through 22. So that's kind of the big picture of that chapter. The next chapter is God's promises to Israel and his covenant with them, and it's kind of put together in the scene of a, of a court scene. So what we have is a summons in the first six verses of the 49th chapter, and then the plaintiff's charge in Isaiah 49, 7 through 13. And then the defendant makes the argument. We have these verses in 49, verses 14, 21, and 24, where Zion gives her statements. And one of those is, Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me and forgotten me. And then the Lord responds. And then finally, the judge makes the indictment. There's a lot of verses in here where the judge says, no, let me tell you what's going to happen here. And that's Isaiah 49, 15 through 20, 22 and 23, 25 and 26. And these really are beautiful passages in Isaiah 49, because as Zion cries out, we've been forgotten. The Lord as judge stands and says, you know what? not even close. Let me tell you my relationship with you. And Bryce, I really like ending this week's Come Follow Me with some of these passages in Isaiah 49 because they're really beautiful. This is a beautiful way to end. Going back to chapter 48, the Lord is acknowledging that you have misbehaved, Israel, and I had to afflict you. But that doesn't mean I left you. It doesn't mean you're not my people. And I love seeing the Lord in this perspective. A God that says in verse 8, I knew that thou wouldst deal very treacherously and was called a transgressor from the womb. But for my name's sake will I defer my anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off." All of these things are part of our tutelage and, and becoming better, not signs that God has cut us off or abandoned us. The Lord is saying, I love you, which is why I'm helping you become better, but I haven't abandoned you. I'm not walking away. Verse 10, I acknowledge I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. That was necessary for Israel, and sometimes it's necessary for each of us. My trials have been the greatest blessing in my life because of what they've allowed me to become. 
I love that in the very first verse of the Book of Mormon, the very first verse, Nephi, who was quite old when he wrote it, is looking back on his life and he acknowledges three things that shaped his character. His family, the great things of God, and his afflictions. And so the Lord is simply saying, I did that for your benefit. I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Even for my own sake will I do it, and I will not give my glory to another. You are mine. Israel, you are mine. And even when you're wicked, I'm going to refine you and shape you, but I'm not giving you up. Now, that's going to lead right into 49, and one of the most beautiful images of Jesus and the atonement you'll find in Scripture. In verse 14, if you are ever tempted to say, because of the furnace of affliction, because of the winepress he's asking us to go through, if you're ever tempted to say, the Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me, he uses this beautiful image to say that's not possible. He says in verse 15, can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? A woman who has just given birth to a baby and paid so high a price to bring that baby into the world. Is she going to walk away from that baby? Can she walk away? Now, fathers do it, but it's much more difficult for the woman who gave birth to walk away. And Jesus is simply saying, do you understand my relationship with you? Now, do babies ever give moms a reason to walk away? Ours certainly did. But my wife could not walk away from them because of the price she paid for them. They are part of her, and she cannot walk away. And Jesus is saying, do you understand my relationship? Even when you were wicked, Israel, I didn't give you up. I couldn't give you up because I have paid too high a price to walk away. He says of the woman and the child, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Why? I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. I cannot forget you. And that's the relationship Jesus has with each and every one of us. There's another really cool translation that goes with that, Bryce, since you bring that up in 4925. Uh, This translation reads, you see, I have engraven you on my palms. I have sealed you to be continually before me. And I think that's a really good reading. It's a beautiful image of God and his love for us. 48, the 48th chapter, notice how it starts. It starts with coming out of the waters of Judah. And then we have all this fertility image. Look in verse eight, talking about how Israel was a transgressor when she came out of the womb. And the Lord says in verse nine, for my name's sake, I will defer mine anger. And for my praise, I will refrain for thee that I cut thee not off. So the Lord says, I'm going to be with you for my name's sake, but I love you. And then he says at the end of verse 11, I'm not going to give my glory to another. The 48th chapter begins and ends with this water imagery. Look at verse 21. They that thirsted not when he led them through the deserts, he caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He clave the rock 
and the waters gushed out. So we have this image of water at the end and at the front. We have images of fertility. Look at verse 19. Thy seed shall be as the sand and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. And so big picture with temple imagery. Think about even for us as Latter-day Saints, the ordinances, we go through the waters of baptism in the basement, but we ascend to the highest ordinances that talk about fertility and seed. And the Lord says in verse nine, I'm not going to cut you off. And over and over again, he says, I know who you are. He says it in different ways, but it's beautiful. Now, Joseph Smith adds a bit, and you know I do my geek out stuff in the show notes, so I'm going to be short in speaking here, but essentially he says in verse 1, this is quoted in 1 Nephi 20, and it's not in the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon. It's in the, the later one that was amended in Nauvoo, but it has this image that they came out of the waters of Judah, and then he writes, or the waters of baptism. And the question is, was that Isaiah? Is that Joseph? I kind of think that's Joseph in his prophetic role as translator, kind of clarifying that idea that the waters of Judah could be read through the lens of a fertility image, but also through the lens of a baptism or a covenant image. And if you think about, especially if you look at the image of a baptismal font in the basement of our temple, we have this big basin with water in it, which anciently was a fertility image, and we have bowls, which are fertility images. And so this is all kind of swirling around in ancient symbolism. And then you get to the 49th chapter, and we're being called from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. Verse three, thou art my servant, O Israel. So I like it as Israel, but I like it as all the other things we've talked about. Verse five, the Lord formed me from the womb. And this is the second servant song. This 49th chapter is the servant song, and there's multiple ways to read it. So we read that he's the servant is formed from the womb. And then in verse five, it says in the middle of the verse, though Israel be not gathered, yet I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. To only. It's a light thing that that's the only thing I've been given you to do. So let me expand that assignment and restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. Now, in that sense, I see that as the Savior. And I'm just going to read verse 7, because I think this is so cool. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also worship, because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. You know, there's a whole book on this. It's by J.H. Eaton, and it's called The Festal Drama in Deutero-Isaiah. He says that the subordination of other kings was a theme prominent in the festal enthronement rites. During that eight-day ceremony, in the festal drama, the king that would die that represents Jesus coming down and dying and being resurrected, the king that would die would be re-enthroned. He would come back to life. He would be re-enthroned. And there would be members of the drama who represented other foreign kings. And they would kneel before the king. First they would see, verse 7, then they would arise, then they would kneel, and they would say, you are the king. And that was happening in the first Israelite temple. Now, what do the gospel writers do when they tell us about Jesus? We have Jesus who's born, and we have foreign kings who rise up, come to the king, they see him, they arise, and then they say, 
you're the king. So I, I know it's just this little teeny verse in Isaiah 49, verse 7, but I think that's a really cool image. And I think that the authors of the Gospels got that, and they wanted to make sure we didn't miss that idea. Pretty cool stuff. Okay, now there's this other bit in Isaiah 49, and it's a small thing. And I don't think 21-year-old Joseph Smith knew what was going on when he's translating this. This is, to me, great evidence that the Book of Mormon is what it proclaims to be. Look at verse 13. This is Isaiah 49, 13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. Now, if you go to the Book of Mormon plate text, if you go to 1 Nephi 21, this is what it says. It says, Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, for, and then it inserts this phrase, The feet of those who are in the east shall be established, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for they shall be smitten no more, for the Lord hath comforted his people, and will have mercy upon the afflicted. That inserted phrase is significant. Yeah, that little bit, the feet of those who are in the east shall be established. It's a small thing, but that phrase refers to sacral kingship. The east is the place where the righteous dwell. So the reference to their feet being, quote, established is a reminder of the time when the king sat upon the throne of God in the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant was his footstool. That promise in Isaiah is a promise of sacral kingship. And my take on it is that actually was on the text. That was what was on the brass plates. That's what was originally in Isaiah. And then a later editor of Isaiah took that out. And the reason why we think that perhaps they took that out is because when they come back and build the second temple, we don't have kings anymore. From the time of the second temple period into Jesus's day, it would be treasonous to proclaim that the king has his feet established on the Ark of the Covenant because why? Well, essentially because that's treasonous to the nations that the Israelites were subordinate to. And so we geek out extensively on the show notes on this and give you lots of references in the Psalms. There are other Psalms that allude to the king sitting on the throne under the cherubim's wings, but I found this reference provocative. And this is coming right out of the Doctrine and Covenants. So if you go to the Doctrine and Covenants, section 78, verse 16, we read about Prince Michael. It reads as follows. By the way, this reference to Prince Michael is a reference to his external priesthood and his kingship. And so section 78, verse 16 of the Doctrine and Covenants reads as follows. Who has appointed Michael your prince and established his feet and set him up on high and given unto him the keys of salvation under the counsel and direction of the Holy One, who is without beginning of days or ends of life. My point is, it's a very small thing that was in the Book of Mormon that was not in the Old Testament, but it's significant because it shows editing, and it comes back to this idea that Isaiah is teaching broadly the temple. Jesus is all through this, but so are you. I mean, if you go back to Isaiah 48, look in verse 19, your seed shall be as the sand. Now that's to Abraham, but that's also to Jesus. Like, who are his seed? That's a big message of Abinadi. But it's also you. And then all these invitations throughout 48 apply to us as well. So once again, I see Isaiah as expansive, but it's also rooted in history, but it's also about Jesus, and it's also the temple. And I think all of those lenses help Isaiah come into focus. That's right. Chapter 49 ends with that image that Israel is like a woman who's lost her children. 
because Israel goes into Babylon, Israel is destroyed by Assyria, and I think there's a reference here to Israel is going to lose her children in the apostasy. She's lost her faithful children. Now jump to the latter days, jump to the restoration. And that woman, verse 20, the children which thou shalt have after thou hast lost the other. Now the Book of Mormon uses the word first there instead of other. The children which thou shalt have, that's future, after thou hast lost the first. So ancient Israel kind of went astray, but you're going to have more children in the future. That's us, folks. That's the restoration. That's the Latter-day Saints who are rising up after an apostasy. The children which thou shalt have after thou hast lost the first shall say again in thine ears, the place is too straight for me. Give me place that I may dwell. In other words, there's a lot of children here, and we need a lot of room. And then Israel will say, verse 21, then shalt thou say in thine heart, who hath begotten me these? seeing I have lost my children. This is Israel looking at us and weeping. Where did these children come from? Who hath begotten me these, seeing I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive, and removing to and fro? And who hath brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. These, where had they been? The answer, verse 22, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. Every one of you listening who has a child out in the mission field or a grandchild out in the mission field are literally fulfilling this prophecy. I will lift up mine hand, and they will bring thy children. They will bring Israel's sons and daughters back. They will carry them in their arms. And then again, a reference to the kings. The kings shall be thy nursing fathers, queens their nursing mothers, and they shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth. This is the great victory in the latter days. I hope every one of you listening understands that we are the final victorious chapter of every bad thing that ever happened to Israel or to the Nephites or the Lamanites in the Book of Mormon, that once again, Israel would have many children and she would rejoice in her posterity. And here we are, the Latter-day Saints, going around to all the world and bringing Israel's children back. I, I just love the end of verse 25 where the Lord says, I will save your children. That's beautiful. And with that, we thank you for being with us in Isaiah. I just love it. We're going to talk about Isaiah some more next week when we cover Isaiah 50 through 57. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.